Hey everybody, how's it going? Hi everybody! This is Hub and welcome Hi, back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, my name is Hub, and I sincerely hope that you are having a wonderful whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. I was walking my dog Finley the other day. And I thought about how weird it is that I get so genuinely excited whenever I think he is about to pee on a fire hydrant because I'm like, oh, that'll be just like in the cartoons. And it's kind of weird and hypocritical of me because when he makes a implausibly large sandwich by shuffling slices of bread and deli meat together like a deck of cards or slices a tiny sliver off of a giant ham and then runs away with the big piece of ham, I just get annoyed because that food was for everybody, Finley. I guess maybe I just think pee is funny. Or I hate fire hydrants. (laughs) Pee. Anyway, we got a heck of a lot of show to get to, so without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Cecilia Hudson, and it comes in the form of a limerick. There once was a boy who was bright green. The fool loved to harass and depreen. He turned into a beaver, Donna found a cleaver, and made synopsis out of his spleen. Thanks, Cecilia. That limerick reminds me. Do you guys know the story about the man from Nantucket? Yeah, he had to move because real estate became prohibitively expensive. Hmm. Tales of the Teen Titans, number 50, February 1985. We are gathered here today. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by George Perez, inked by Mike DiCarlo and Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, gown design by Carol Flynn, that's a credit we don't see very often, and edited by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Teen Titan Roll Call, Wonder Girl, Nightwing, Cyborg, Raven, Starfire, Beast Boy, Jericho, Kid Flash, Speedy, Aqualad, Hooray, Aqua Girl, Lilith, Mal Duncan, Bumblebee, Hawk, Dove, Golden Eagle, Bat-Girl, and Harlequin. That's a lot of Titans. Previously in Tales of the Teen Titans. There's been two issues that have been largely filler while our heroes have been eagerly anticipating the impending nuptials of Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, to divorcee community college professor Terry Long. In what may have been a subconscious act of self-sabotage, Donna decided to turn over the wedding planning to her teammate Garfield Logan, a.k.a. Beast Boy, who, in addition to being 16 years old, immature for his age, still dealing with the trauma of watching his erstwhile teammate Terra evil herself to death in an attempt to murder the other Titans, is also an asshole. Gadzooks! What calamities will befall the happy couple on this, their special day? Who will be the most surprising wedding attendee? And will the reception have an open bar? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... None. None whatsoever. Well, Sting is there. So are Superman, Batman, and I think Michael Jackson. But when you consider that the groom is Terry Long, I'm probably most surprised that Donna showed up. And... 
Seeing as Dick, Mal, and Jericho form an impromptu jam band, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, there's definitely an open bar. On the mist-shrouded island of Themyscira, Donna's mom Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons, has locked herself in the island's main temple, and is having a little chat with Athena, the goddess of wisdom. The other Amazonians are a little spooked, because apparently this is not something that is done lightly. Probably because Athena has a pet owl, and I certainly wouldn't want to have to clean up celestial-grade owl pellets unless it was absolutely necessary. Meanwhile, in the East Hamptons, at the palatial estate of Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, Beast Boy is scrambling around overseeing the details of the wedding ceremony and reception that are to take place there that afternoon. His dad's administrative assistant-slash-butler, Questor, is understandably concerned when a clown shows up. Questor's problem is that he feels clowns are inappropriate entertainment for a wedding, which is fair, but seems to downplay the fact that in the DC universe, clowns are even more prone to murder than they are in our universe, and that's saying something. Gar points out that there are a number of young children in attendance, and having a clown there will help keep them from running around and getting underfoot. I mean, yeah, but if they're quiet because they're terrified and or murdered, I don't know that that's necessarily a good trade-off. Questor, on the other hand, is impressed with Gar's thinking and his attention to detail. Apparently, the Emerald Adolescent has been working non-stop on the event coordination, and contrary to pretty much everybody's expectations, seems to be doing a good job. Questor tells the pubescent planning prodigy that he can take over for a few minutes if Gar wants to go and get dressed for the ceremony. Relieved to have a break from multitasking, the green teen accepts Questor's offer. In a different part of the state, Jericho's mom, Adeline, wakes up to find that her son has been hard at work painting a portrait of Donna and Terry as a gift for the bride and groom. Ah, And also I hope that portrait is in addition to a gift from their registry. I mean, people put those things together for a reason. Off in that weird pink and purple dimension that's all lightning and unconventional rock formations where Raven likes to go and brood and lament the fact that her dad is an evil demon, Raven is brooding and lamenting the fact that her dad is an evil demon. The Azerathian empath has decided not to attend the wedding on account of the fact that her powers are unstable, and she's worried that her aforementioned demonic bad dad might crawl out of her bird-shaped soul tummy and destroy the universe and blah blah blah. Jeez, Raven ever puts together a gift registry I know what she should ask for? A new record, cause hers is broken. We transition from one nightmarish hellscape to another. The Long Island Expressway, where Cyborg and his maybe, but probably not, but then again maybe, love interest Sarah Sims are stuck in traffic on the way to the wedding. Vic expresses his concern that everyone at the ceremony will be weirded out by the fact that he's all robot-y and stuff, and, in addition to that being a source of embarrassment, it might also jeopardize Donna's secret identity. Seriously? Dude, the Wonder Girl costume doesn't even have a mask. The entirety of her disguise consists of her changing her earrings and trying to remember not to refer to herself by her full name in the third person like she was a super-powered Ricky Henderson. Which isn't to say that Ricky Henderson doesn't have superpowers. I mean, in 1982, he had 130 stolen bases. 130! Hey... 
Since Wally West is all, wah, super speed is the worst and it's probably going to kill me. Wah, wah, wah. Maybe Ricky Henderson could replace him as the new kid Flash. Meanwhile, back at the Dayton estate, Gar has donned a tuxedo and looks like he is dressed for a psychedelic junior prom in 1974, which is to say, he looks pretty good. As the dapper young do-gooder heads downstairs to check in on the caterers and florists, Questor checks in on Steve Dayton. Gar's adopted dad isn't looking so good. The put-upon plutocrat has been staring at a bottle of booze, and though he claims not to have touched it, he looks like he is coming off a three-day bender. Questor reminds his employer that he has agreed to assist with something for the wedding. Dayton grumbles that he'll do his part if he can just get some help getting to the shower first. Gotta say, if I owned stock in Dayton Industries, right now I would seriously consider diversifying my portfolio. If that means sell my stocks. I'm a little unclear on how the stock market works. Everything I know about it I learned from watching the movies Trading Places and Quicksilver, so I may be under the impression that frozen orange juice futures and investing in Paul Rodriguez's hot dog stand play a larger role in our economy than they actually do. In a different part of stately Dayton Manor, Donna and her bridesmaids are getting gussied up. Lilith mentions that her ex-boyfriend, the time-displaced teenage caveman Ganark, will not be attending. Aww. I was hoping he would give a toast that would just be him saying, Hello, my name is John Ganark. I live at Jupiter Towers. Not a dry eye in the house. Donna has a nice talk with her sister Wonder Woman about being in love. That's nice. Dick comes in and tells Donna that it's showtime. They share a nice moment, and then he walks her down the aisle. It's a nice ceremony with about a million attendees who all have distinct faces. It is impressive as hell. Among the recognizable guests are Clark Kent, Lana Lang, Bruce Wayne, all the former Titans I mentioned in the roll call, Donna's adopted mom Faye, and her new stepfamily, the Evanses, Terry's parents, Terry's sister, Terry's piece-of-shit brother Barry, Barry Jr., Donna's co-workers from her photography studio, the old woman from the orphanage that Donna was adopted out of, Marv Wolfman, Adrienne Roy, a dress designer named Phoenicia Banu, and a whole bunch of other distinct faces, some of whom have names, that we have never seen before. Everyone gets a little teary when Donna and Terry exchange their vows. After the service, Gar arranges for a thousand white doves to be released, which makes me think that a John Woo-style gunfight is about to break out, but it doesn't, which is probably for the best. Gar and Questor bustle around to make sure everything's in order for the reception. Questor hears some splashing by the pool and goes in to kick out whoever's swimming, but is surprised to discover that it is Aqualad and Aquagirl! Hooray! who are partaking in their hourly rehydration, which is vitally important for them to stay alive when Reuters remember that it exists. Questor apologizes for intruding, and Aquagirl is like, That's okay. Also, we're naked. Hooray! Down in the wall-to-wall yellow shag-carpeted ballroom, Gar introduces the wedding party, which includes five people we have never seen or heard of before. Then, Donna and Terry have their first dance to John Denver's Annie song. Risky choice. 
Last time a John Denver song was played in the comic book we covered, an elf with a gun popped out and killed a guy and his possibly inflatable wife. This time, when the John Denver song stops playing, there is an arguably less distressing result. Donna and Terry kiss. Like I said, arguably. A band with a new wave slash punk aesthetic called the Waldos take the stage and the guests begin to dance and mingle. Mal Duncan and Karen Beecher, a.k.a. Bumblebee, congratulate the married couple, and we learn that Mal and Karen are also married, have retired from crime fighting, and that Mal is a published novelist. Wow. wonder what it says about me that I'm more impressed that at 19 Mal is a published author than I was when he beat up an angel of death and won a magic shofar. Mal implies that the reason Ganark did not attend is that he is dead. What the fuck? I looked into this, and there is never any follow-up to this statement. Gnark just died off-panel for no apparent reason in an issue that is meant, at least in part, to celebrate the Titans' past. Man, fuck that. Well, Wally, Aqualat, Hooray, and Speedy stand around and reminisce about simpler times before Wally was such an asshole, Questor investigates a strange sound that he thinks he heard. After finding no immediate explanation for the noise, the administrative assistant dismisses it as probably nothing. In what is perhaps the most unexpected twist in this entire series so far, he's actually right. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We have another contender in the surprising turn of events contest. Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne head out onto the balcony to talk about their feelings. Wow. As the two men are having their heart-to-heart, -heart, a group of women gather around to stare at their butts. Nice. Throughout the course of the day, Cyborg has been confused that no one has mentioned how shiny and mostly metal he is. He asks Beast Boy what the deal is, and Gar replies, Oh, you know how my adopted dad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, has a magic hat that he calls the Mento Helmet that gives him psychic powers but that fuck with his sanity? Well, I told him to put on that hat and use his powers to make sure that nobody notices what a freak you are. Neat, huh? Vic does not think that is neat. He stomps off angrily, hurt that his acceptance by society was merely the result of an illusion. Fair enough. Wonder Woman gets a weird feeling that something is wrong. She dismisses it as probably nothing. Again, she is correct. After he finishes his chat with his surrogate father, Dick spots his old pal Harlequin, a.k.a. Duella Dent, the Joker's daughter, so named because she was the daughter of Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face. Look, the 70s was a confusing time. Dick approaches Duella and is like, Hey, how's it going? I just realized you're like 50. You're way too old to be Two-Face's daughter. Why are you so old? What gives? Oh, Nightwing, you silver-tongued devil. It's a good thing that he canonically has a great ass. Rather than kicking him in the nuts, Duella replies laughingly, Oh, Dick, you poor sweet idiot. You're just noticing that now? You really are dumber than a box of stupid. See ya! Golden Eagle and Bat-Girl ask Aqualad and Aquagirl if they want to reform the Teen Titans West. The aquatic adventurers are like, No thank you. We're too busy being rad and skinny-dipping. Thanks, though. Hooray! Gar feels shitty about making Vic feel like his identity was an embarrassment and that he would only ever be accepted by concealing his true nature from society. 
and Vic feels shitty for making Garth think about how his actions might impact others. So they both apologize. Dick, Jericho, and Mel have had a few drinks, so they rush the stage, appropriate some instruments from the Waldos, and start an impromptu jam band. Everyone thinks that they are great. Which certainly lends credence to my open bar theory. Either that, or Steve Dayton is really working overtime with that Mentos helmet. Nah. Even the Freshmaker hat isn't powerful enough to make sober people enjoy a jam band. Suddenly, Wonder Woman grabs her sister and is like, You and Terry need to get upstairs! Stat! There is something up there that you need to see. The newlyweds are appropriately freaked out, but dutifully obey Wonder Woman's directive. The Amazonian princess ushers them upstairs into a room, where they find Donna's mom, Hippolyta, is floating there, waiting for them. It turns out that at the beginning of the book, the Queen of the Amazons was asking Athena for permission to leave the island so that she could attend her daughter's wedding. Athena said sure, as long as she floated and didn't let her feet touch the ground. Hippolyta tells her grateful daughter, this is only the second time she has ever been permitted to leave Themyscira, but she just had to be there for her daughter's wedding. And by wedding... I guess she means the tail end of the wedding reception. And by there, I guess she means in a secluded room nearby the party. Oh well. It's still a very nice gesture. After that, the party starts to wind down. Donna's old roommate Sharon catches the bouquet. Jericho catches the garter belt. Sharon and Jericho flirt. As the guests start leaving, the other Titans tell Gar that he did a good job wedding planning and give him a medal for not fucking everything up. I bet he starts wearing that medal with every outfit like he's Dracula. Donna and Terry take off in Steve Dayton's private jet on their way to begin their honeymoon in Greece. During the flight, Donna changes into a short, revealing toga and asks her new husband how she looks. Terry replies that she looks super hot. Kind of like her mom. Damn it, Terry! We were having such a nice day. Donna, however, knows who she married, and she takes the creepy comment in stride. The happy couple declares their love for one another as their plane flies off into the sunset. The end. I wonder if Dracula's medal was for wedding planning. Fucking Dracula. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Last week, if you'll recall, Cory had been swallowed by a giant space whale when he had dressed up as Krill after misunderstanding the Dairy Queen logo, Grill and Chill, as being Krill and Chill. Fortunately, since then, the giant space whale has puked up Cory, and he somehow landed in Puerto Vallarta. Cory, how are you doing? I am doing good. It's uh, it's warm and sunny, and uh, there's no more whales around. I'm staying away from the water, though. That's probably good. And did you get rid of the krill costume? Yeah, yeah, most of it came off in the whale incident. Yeah, no good will come of that outfit. I didn't want to say anything, Corey, but it made your butt look big. Oh, my. Okay. And you know those space whales like some thick, so that's probably why it ate you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wow. Well, I historically haven't had much of a butt, so I don't know if that's an improvement or not, but no matter, the costume is no longer, so... Fair enough. 
So, we read the uh, extra-sized wedding special that was Tales of the Teen Titans number 50. What'd you think? Yeah, it's a lot of comic book for a event. Yeah. And it was very much focused on that event. I Overall, though, I thought it was pretty sweet. I liked a lot of the interplay between the characters. It, it kind of reminded me of reading a who's who in the DCU issue. There were just so many people from past stories popping up. Yeah, and people that I assumed were from past stories, but who weren't. There was so many people in this issue. It I don't know. I have trouble wrapping my mind around exactly what my feelings about this issue were, because it doesn't feel necessarily like a comic book. It feels... Yeah, more like a who's who kind of, or just like a scrapbook of a wedding, almost. It tells the story of the wedding, and it does that pretty well. It also just, I don't know who this comic was for, you know? Mm -hmm. It feels like the creators were kind of taking a victory lap. I think that it felt more like that than anything else. Mm. The art was gorgeous. Perez really outdid himself, and it must have been incredibly difficult, especially for someone who is used to working in the genre of superhero comics, to draw as many characters as he did in this and have them all feel pretty distinct and have none of them in costumes. Like, there is a cast of probably literally hundreds in this issue, and you can't differentiate them by how they're dressed in the slightest. Yeah, the amount of work, and I don't know if this was produced in the same amount of time which the books usually were, but I imagine it was a, just a huge amount of work for illustration and, and coloring. It would not surprise me if this is why he did not do the art on the last couple of issues and is going to be taking the next few issues off as well. It, it really did just seem like, yeah, a Herculean effort. And that was really nice to see. And there were things that were done really well in it that kept the tension of the story up. But really, at the end of the day, it is a 40-page comic book about a wedding where nothing goes wrong. I know. I almost was going to finish your sentence by saying, yeah, and then nothing happened, you know, except them getting married, which right. I guess was you know, the it, point. But It's a momentous life event. And I, I think it was clever the way that it did that. There were all of these hints, like almost the comic book equivalent of jump scares, where it's like it would set these seeds of, oh, shit, I know what happens at this point in the wedding comic book. It would set up these tensions where it's like, oh, Lilith feels a chill. Something's wrong. Or, oh, Questor hears a f weird noise. There, a a supervillain's going to come out. Or Steve Dayton's acting really weird. Something horrible's going to happen. Yep. And then none of them did. And it was clever having that kind of tension going, but in a way sort of unsatisfying. Yeah, like I said, I don't really know how to feel about it. It, it was very well executed, but it was also, there were so many characters in this. And we got to spend so little time with each of them and trying to figure out exactly who was who in all of them. It was kind of overwhelming and boring. Yeah, yeah, it did kind of drag on a little bit. All that said, it was refreshing to see Beast Boy uh, Gar do a good job and not be a creep. Yeah, no, overall, he he did a nice job and it really did kind of bring home the amount of stress that event planning can be. It was kind of funny to me that at the end, when they give him his big reward, the rest of the Titans chipped in and got him a little medal that says, number one, master caterer. Yeah, that cracked me up. For it's sure. like, okay, catering wasn't really what he was doing there. And also, 
did they just previously have a medal made for him that said number one master Bader? And then at the last <laughs> minute, they're just like, okay, he actually didn't fuck things up. Uh, let's get Fran over here, use her magnet powers to uh, change that B to a C. It's possible. I think it's likely. Yeah, I, I, that scene cracked me up when they present him with his uh, medal. And then almost immediately start giving him shit about it. It's like, oh, he's so proud of himself. Look at look at the big man here who has a C on his medal instead of a B. <laughs> but he pulled it off. So he he did pull it off and uh, had some good ideas on how to do the wedding despite Questor's apprehensions. I talked about some of the like false scares that were thrown in there, and for me, one of the major ones was when a man in a clown outfit shows up apparently to Questor's view uninvited i was like oh shit about 150 people are gonna get murdered right now Mm -hmm. but no man beast boy had just hired a clown to entertain the children that were there a clown named bonzo or bonzo bonzo is how i read it probably bonzo yeah that uh concerned me also when he showed up but turned out it was fine yeah one of the other weird little things that it was very much towards the end of the book But when they're on the private plane and the in-flight service makes a point of presenting Donna and Terry with complimentary beverages, which I think Donna appreciated, uh, not being the one to hand out free sodas for a change. But when that happened, it also gave me that same kind of, oh no, they're drawing attention to these cocktails. Clearly they are drugged. But that didn't appear to be the case either. Yeah, and on on top of that, I think we're we're chatting about this off the show, but I've been watching the uh, Titans ser- Netflix Titan series, which oh yeah, I'm, how is it? I'm really enjoying it. I I don't know if it's available in the U.S. yet. If it, you've seen it on Netflix. right now, it is only it's not available on Netflix in the U.S. It's only available through a special DC Universe app. Okay, so it's really good, but it's also extremely dark. It's like a very a very dark, kind of somber, almost take on the series. Mm-hmm. And so because of kind of binging on that, I opened up this comic, and I had the same thing as you. I just, at every turn, I'm like, oh, something really bad is about to happen, and it just doesn't. Well, and specifically in superhero comics, if there is a wedding issue, it almost seems to throw up a bat signal for supervillains to come attack it. And yeah, it created this weird tension that it was a relief at the end but also it was just like oh uh okay huh yeah and and that's even kind of alluded to at one point where diana's rushing terry and uh and wonder girl off to you know turns out to go meet hippolyta but that's all super like hush hush and you you were led to believe that something maybe nefarious is is happening and she makes the comment about is there some villain some super villain and uh nope no it's just her mom who that was another thing that was set up like the opening page is her mom going and petitioning the gods about this incredibly important matter that is a super big deal and all the other Amazons are kind of freaking out and are like, if you're dying or if we need to be led into battle, we're up for it. And she's like, no, this is a personal matter. And it turns out that she wanted to get the gods' permission to get a hall pass out of, uh, I just almost called it Fantasy Island, but Paradise Island. (laughs) to go attend her daughter's wedding. I suppose it being paradise rather than Fantasy Island is why she flew on her own accord rather than taking the plane, the plane. (laughs) But it did seem weird to me that she went through all of this shit and like got special permission from Athena 
to leave Thamascara so that she could attend Donna's wedding and then didn't show up until like halfway through the wedding reception. Yeah, and then had to like hang out in a room by herself. Like, this is her one shot to get off of this island in her, like, immortal life. And she wasted by going and sitting in a drawing room while her daughter gets married nearby. That's kind of rough, man. Yeah, I guess she's just really playing it safe. Like, she doesn't have any contact with anybody and can't touch the ground and all of that. So maybe she's just playing it extra safe. Speaking of playing it safe, let's talk about Cyborg's journey in this issue. So he's all nervous about going to the wedding because he doesn't want to be gawked at and he doesn't want to blow Donna's secret identity by his attendance. Sarah Sims, who has graciously agreed to be his date as of the day before the wedding, points out, well, what about Beast Boy? He's all green and super famous for being a Teen Titan. Why is it okay that he's there? And Cyborg says, oh, he arranged Donna to do some publicity photos for him so they're officially business contacts now. Why couldn't she just take photos of the rest of the Teen Titans? Then it would be fine if he showed up. Like, he's a minor celebrity. It seems like there are other minor celebrities at the wedding, or major celebrities. Sting Mm -hmm. bumps into him. Yep. Michael Jackson was maybe even there. Really? I didn't catch that one. I think it's page 25. He's, like, in the background. And it's at the time they're singing the John Denver song, (laughs) which I was like, whoa, do they have Michael Jackson singing a John Denver song? That is absolutely... Michael Jackson, and I did not catch it. He's even wearing his weird Sergeant Peppery jacket with the mm-hmm. epaulets. Yep. Yeah, so there are celebrities that are there. They don't suspect that Donna's a member of the Jackson 5. They don't think she's, like, a member of the police. Like, he could just go as himself. But instead, Beast Boy goes through this thing where he has his stepdad, Steve Dayton, who is looking rough, man. Yeah, what's his deal? I don't know. I feel like part of it is, I mean, Questor makes the implication that Steve Dayton has a pretty severe drinking problem because Steve was like, no, no, I wasn't drinking it. I was just looking at the bottle. I haven't touched it. But the other problem that I think Steve Dayton has is he has an issue with wearing the Mento helmet where the Freshmaker suit is really bad for him. And It seems to be almost like a combination of addiction slash exacerbating some kind of mental fragility that he has. And so for Beast Boy to have him wear it and stay in a small room in his own mansion and ward people's thoughts away from Cyborg seems like a pretty rough move. Yeah, I don't think that was the best thought out thing on Gar's part. No, Cyborg it, certainly didn't it, appreciate it when he first no, found out. No, he got over it, but I can see where both characters are coming from on that, honestly. It depends on whether you would view it as like a protection of a secret identity type thing or whether it is a like social construct where you just don't want to have to deal with prejudice for a day. And if it was Cyborg deciding that he didn't want to deal with it for a day, that would be one thing. If it's Beast Boy deciding... Oh, I just don't want the headache of this. That's a pretty different thing. Honestly, that whole thing, like so many problems in comic books, if they had a conversation, if they didn't 
decide that they needed to keep it a surprise for no reason whatsoever, it would be pretty different. Yeah, a little communication goes a long way. But yeah, having his stepdad put on the Freshmaker hat seems like a pretty rough move. It reminded me of the equivalent of like somebody has been dealing with their alcoholism and has been like, okay, I've been sober for two years. And then their kid's like, but dad, you're way more fun when you're drunk and it's a wedding. So just have a couple. Okay, just do this for me. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's the Mento getup that's messing Dayton up? It's kind of tough to tell. I think that was what the implication was, and I have vague memories of the last time we saw him back in issue, I don't remember, what was it, like 12 or something, that he had suffered some kind of a breakdown after wearing the suit for too long, and that it had taken a pretty severe mental toll on him. But there was all kinds of other shit going on with that. Uh, It really seemed like he was in pretty rough shape, and I think it was connected to him using the Freshmaker hat. Good to know. Bad on Gar, though. Shit. I mean, I guess we have to assume that he doesn't really know that that's messing him up. Yeah, because if nothing else, we know that in addition to being the fifth richest man in America, Steve Dayton is perhaps, I'm going to say maybe the seventh worst communicator. Wow. Even within the universe where everybody is super bad at communicating with everyone. He stands Mm -hmm. out. So let's talk about some of the other wedding guests. So we have a lot of former Teen Titan characters that are in this. We get Mal Duncan and Karen, also known as Bumblebee. Yay. Yeah, it was great to see them. They seem to be about 15 years older than the rest of the Titans, and Mal has put on a lot of weight. We see Lilith, who we saw a couple of issues ago as well, and last issue. Nice to see her. We see Hawk and Dove, who I wasn't necessarily expecting to see. I think that it looks like Dove made Hawk dye his hair black. Maybe as some (laughs) kind of a prank. Oh, maybe so. We see Golden Eagle again, who I had totally forgotten that his name is Charlie Parker, and he's a bird. So that's kind of fun. (laughs) I missed it. Aqualad and Aquagirl are skinny dipping. That's a fun time. Batgirl is back. I'm sorry, Bat-Girl, who is different than Bat-No-Girl, who, yeah, I think she later changes her name to Flamebird. But yeah, the pro tennis player who was part of the Teen Titans West briefly. Uh, We get Wally. He doesn't fuck things up too bad, so that's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We get Speedy who likewise doesn't fuck things up too bad. Yep. Always a pleasant surprise. We get Harlequin, who I had said that Mal and Karen looked like they're about 10 or 15 years older than the rest of the Titans. Harlequin looks like she is in her mid-50s. I mean, she always did in costume. We joked about the fact that she essentially looked like Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. But they go all in on that, and Dick makes a statement of just like, Hey, I never noticed before, but you're like 50. (laughs) Like, you're too old to be Two-Face's daughter. And she's like, yep, sure am. You're an idiot. And then walks away. Yeah, that was funny. It was funny, but it was also, it was confusing the way they are playing with the other characters' ages in this. I think there's some mention made of some characters says to Hawk and Dove, oh, we thought you were older. And I'm not sure what the nature of that joke is. I mean, they did debut a long time ago, but so did all of the Teen Titans. And so I don't know what that joke was. And yeah, the fact that like Mal definitely like he and Karen got married years ago 
and he's retired and has published a novel. Is he supposed to be 19 too? Because he doesn't look 19. No, no. And he's published a novel. I was kind of confused by that as well, because I would just... Yeah, always kind of imagined all those characters being in roughly the same age bracket. Well, um, they were. They were all teenagers at the same time, but now some of them aren't teenagers anymore, and not in a way where like they even seem to be in their like early 20s. So some of that stuff kind of messed with me. Not as much as the fact that, what the fuck happened to Ganark? It sounds like uh, something bad. Didn't Did he get lost in another dimension and didn't get back or something? N- nope. Wasn't there some... No? Okay. There was nothing about him. The last time we saw him in Teen Titans West, he joined the Teen Titans West team and Lilith tried to steal Long Island and then they all got their picture taken after Dick begrudgingly took them out to pizza. And it drops this thing like, oh, we're so sorry to hear about what happened to Ganark. And Lilith's like, yeah, it was pretty tough. It drops out like it's a seed for another story or something that we missed that had happened in other comic books. I looked it up. He hadn't appeared before then. He hadn't appeared until now. And it's just really disorienting to have that. And that was kind of what I meant when I said I'm not sure who this comic is for. It seems like this should be like a kind of fun bonus that rewards hardcore fans. And there are little Easter eggs in it that do that. But then even those allude to things that we couldn't possibly know and make us feel like we've missed something. So do you think it was more so for the writers and creators? I think maybe. Definitely there is a bit of the creators saying, hey, this is for us, in that they included certain creators in the wedding party. Uh, Marv Wolfman is there. Adrienne Roy, the colorist of the book, is in the book and talks about how she's doing the colors and flower arrangements for the wedding. We see a character named Phoenicia Banu, and that is George Perez's wife. Her name is Carol Flynn, and she gets the credit in the comic book for designing the bridal outfits, but she also appears as a character, and George Perez said that he gave her the pseudonym Phoenicia Banu because that was similar to a name she used to dance under. I thought that was really nice. And there are a bunch of little touches. There's the scene where they're going over the guest list, and I think Questor is saying, I barely got the chance to talk to some of these people. And there's a list of characters there, and Marv Wolfman's whole family is on that list, and Romeo Tangal and Todd Klein and a lot of people who have worked on the book over the years are on the list. And there was another name that stood out to me that was on that list. Rob Liefeld was on the list. Who is uh, Rob Liefeld? He was a very famous comic book artist in the early 90s. He did Youngblood and X-Force and was in a Levi's commercial. But at the time that this book came out, he was a member of the Teen Titans fan club and had been for a long time. And he had been contacted like, hey, would you like to be in the Teen Titans wedding issue as a special reward for being such a big fan? And he did, and so they put his name on it. And what's kind of funny is he was notorious for missing deadlines and for having his books come out late. But even when he was a kid, before he became a professional artist, he said that if he had gotten a picture to George Perez in time, a photograph of himself, Perez would have drawn him in as a wedding guest, but he didn't mail the picture in time. (laughs) Oh, man. But that was, I thought, a kind of fun connection. Uh, One of our listeners brought that up to me in a email and I was looking through my old emails and I couldn't find it. So if you're the person who pointed that out to me, 
thank you. That was really interesting and caused me to look into it a bit deeper. And I think that's kind of a fun story. But yeah, it is a weird wedding list. We also have the Evanses, which is the adopted family of Wonder Girl, sort of. It's her adopted mom's new family that she considers her step-siblings. And they're all there. That's uh, Cindy and Faye and Hank and Jerry. And then we have the Longs, Terry's family, and that's Barry and Barry Jr., who we see in one scene, and his daughter Jenny and his sister and his mom and dad, who don't get names. And then there's also just a bunch of characters who we have never seen before, who we get first names for and we get to see them. And I'm wondering if they're part of the fan club and that was why they were involved in it. But there is a ring bearer whose name is Adam, who doesn't appear to be affiliated with either of the families in any way, so it's just kind of weird that they have a random kid show up and be their ring bearer. I was I was going to ask you about that. It seemed weird to me, too, that there was no connection. Yeah, it. I, I couldn't find any connection. I was trying to figure out who that kid was because there's a scene where Beast Boy presents the wedding party and they're all photographed. And some of them, obviously, we've seen before. But what struck me even in some ways more than who he introduced as part of the wedding party, was who he didn't introduce as being part of the wedding party. And that's Dick. Dick got fitted for his tux with the guys. He's got the matching tuxedo. He is apparently not a groomsman, in fact. I guess maybe giving the bride away doesn't count as one of the groomsmen. But yeah, he it's was like weird in the dad role. Yeah, it's weird that they included him in all of the pre-wedding stuff, but not in that. So we get Jennifer and Adam, and as I said, Jennifer is Terry Long's daughter, and Adam, we have never seen before. Cindy, uh, who is Donna's stepsister, and Barry Jr., and we have not seen Barry Jr. before, but we can figure out who he is from context because we know who Barry is. We get Sharon, who is Donna's ex-roommate, who is delightful, and Howard, who we have never seen Howard before, Lilith and Samuel. We don't know who Samuel is. We get Corey and Randolph. We don't know who Randolph is. And we get Diana and Barry. We know who they are. They're Wonder Woman and Barry. Now, as I said, it's weird that they didn't include Dick. But what was almost as surprising for me is, where's Jerry? Where's Barry's shitty friend Jerry, who was at the tux fitting, who was giving Dick shit? Yeah, well, maybe Terry had to talk with him. <laughs> it was just like, uh, you can't come. You know, do you think he tried to sneak in as Larry? Like, do you think he just had like a list of like diminutive nicknames that he tried out? Oh, shit. Yeah, I um, put it past him. Yeah, I decided that one of the things that Gar did was he kicked Jerry out. And that's why we get all these weird fill-ins. But I mean, it's not like this is old continuity. This is from last issue. And then they introduce all of these new characters. During the wedding scene, you see these little headshots of all of the people that are in attendance of the wedding. And there's like 37 people that are these individual headshots. And a lot of them are characters we have never seen before, which is fine. I get that it's a wedding and it did kind of add to a sense of chaos that I think is what you get in big weddings like that. But where there were so many characters who we are supposed to recognize, who are kind of like deep cuts... It was really disorienting to also have all of these people that aren't people that we've seen before, who are just there for this one scene and don't appear later in comic books. Yeah, it's an impressive amount of illustration, for sure, because this mm -hmm. just, I'd, like you said, 30-some-odd 
like they surround the entire perimeter of the page. And I did the same thing. I <laughs> went through like pointing at each one. It's like, yep, okay, nope, 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 nope. But there was a lot of faces I did not recognize there. And like I said, I understand like this issue is kind of a victory lap and it's a celebration of the, the Titans. But I mean, I don't think I'm flattering us when I say at this point, we've literally read every issue of the Teen Titans leading up to this. And if it's confusing for us, it must have been really confusing for the casual reader. And you would think a milestone issue would be one where you would bring on new readers in addition to perhaps rewarding longtime readers. And this doesn't seem like it's quite doing either of those. Yeah. On, on that note, who were the guys that were the videographers? Were, were, were that uh, Wolfman and, and company that, that uh, they inserted themselves or were those other? No, that's people? a different thing. That is from the photography studio that Donna works at. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was trying to figure We've out if We've seen that them was briefly before. But yeah, that was one that I had to look up. And that's the other thing. Like when this came out in 85, you couldn't look these things up. So th those are my issues with some of just the ancillary characters. I did say also that Sting is attending the wedding and he's called out by name and he bumps into Cyborg and Cyborg thinks he's going to give him shit about being a robot man. But instead, Sting says, hey, can I ask you something? Did you ever play football? You know, because you're so big, if you don't mind my asking. Wait, wait, Hub, doesn't Sting have some kind of an accent? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Okay. It's okay. Try it again. <laughs> well, hello there. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're a pretty big fella. Oh, I forgot he was <laughs> Did from you used to play football? No, I'm sorry. That's not how Sting talks. Oi, I bumped into you, and you used to play American football. Wait, what do they call it? Uh, I think that's what they call it over there. They call it American football. They don't call it clips and wobbles. <laughs> I've, I've not heard that before, but I, I think not... probably that's what they call it. Okay. But yeah, so Sting bumps into him and like, that's just a weird thing to say regardless. Like, that's rude no matter what. One time I may have mentioned this on the show before, but one time when I was working at a Middle Eastern restaurant, uh, Scotty Pippen came in and was getting some to-go food. And I spilled some hummus on myself and started laughing at myself. And then uh, when I looked up, he was laughing too. And I reflexively mean mugged him for like half a second. And he's like, hey, I'm only laughing because you're not laughing. And then we both laughed together. And it was nice to share a moment with Scotty Pippen. What I'm saying is Scotty Pippen and me are best friends. <laughs> of course. Yeah. But the other thing that happened while Scottie Pippen was waiting in line for his to-go food, which he did tip on, which there have been rumors. I have heard the phrase no tippin' Pippin get thrown around. And yeah, that's some fun rhyming. But uh, I would just like to say in my experience, Scottie Pippen, class act. But the other thing that I witnessed was somebody came up to my best friend, Scottie Pippen, and looked up at him and said, how's the weather up there? Yeah. And his response was he just looked down and shook his head sadly and said, old. Oh, and I thought burned. that was a really good response because yeah. it keeps it a little bit ambiguous as to whether the weather is old up there or that is just his general response that that is an old thing for that guy to say. But, but yeah, this is along similar lines. Like just saying, hey, you're a big black man. Are you a football player? Why would you ask that of a stranger? And why would you specifically say that you needed to ask him that? So I guess I'm just saying Sting's an asshole. Yeah, and I'd, I mean, I wouldn't 
make the assumption that Sting is a close follower of high school American football. Yeah, he's not a big uh, clips and warbles aficionado, necessarily. No, I think that's those are the little things at the bottom of the fish and chips basket. Oh, no, no. Those are called aglets. Aglets, Corey. Aglets. I always get those mixed up. No, is aglets that, are is the that really things what that... No, aglets are the the, uh, the little plastic bits at the end of your shoelaces are called aglets. Oh, that's right. It is funny, though, the extent to which Sting does not look like Sting. No, he doesn't. I'm yeah. assuming that, that he was supposed to be the musician Sting, but I kind of get the impression that Marv Wolfman knew who Sting was and George Perez didn't. And Perez maybe asked somebody, wait, who's Sting? And they're like, oh, he's blonde. He's a rock star. You know him. And he's like, oh, um, okay. Let's see. So he gave him blonde hair, and then he's like, and he's a rock star, so he's probably wearing sunglasses. I'll put sunglasses on him. And that was kind of the extent of the research that he did. There was, at this point, already a stand-in for Sting in the DC Universe, and that is John Constantine. I think he had debuted by now. He might not have. Wait, but what? John, John Constantine was modeled after Sting. He was supposed to look like him. Oh, that is weird. But that's enough Sting talk. That's <laughs> not not something I hear you say that often. I know. Normally, I could just go on and on about Sting. But yeah, let's talk about some of the other things that are going on at the wedding. I think you had mentioned before that their song is Annie's Song by John Denver. Oh, I had mentioned, yeah, that it was a John Denver song. I didn't call it out by name. Oh, we I, don't have I, to pay royalties now, do we? Oh, I don't think so, but I'm just getting it mixed up because I think the only song with a title like that that I know is Danny's Song, which I don't think is the same. That was what I was thinking of. You absolutely do know Annie's Song. It's the one that's, you fill up my senses like a da da do 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 you know, that uh, song. Okay. But here's the thing about that. Annie's Song, not my cup of tea. It's fine. Little on the sappy side. I mean, John Denver definitely had some bangers. I'm uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. But Annie's song is definitely like kind of a schmaltzy, like standard what you would think of as a wedding song, which is fine. But they had previously evinced so much scorn on the song Feelings by Andy Williams that I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Annie's song is going to be your wedding song, you don't get to shit on Andy Williams. In a previous issue, Terry Long had said, and I'll make sure the musicians know they can't play feelings. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, well, Al you know, Although an, an alternate theory did just present itself to me. Perhaps that was Terry's first wedding song, and that is why he wants to ensure that it is not played at this wedding. Ah. Because that'd be awkward as fuck. Yep. No, that could be a thing. No, you know what? I think Terry Long had Annie's song at both weddings. Dun, dun, dun. Finally, the bad thing that we've been waiting for to happen in this issue has revealed well, itself. Well, the other potential bad thing that happened at this issue that revealed itself is when they're flying off on Steve Dayton's private jet on their honeymoon and Donna comes out in her mini toga dress. Terry Lug says essentially, holy shit, you look so hot. Kind of like your mom. Yeah, he does say that. Fuck it, Terry. A few other things happen at the wedding. We find out that canonically, uh, everybody in the DCU, at least all the ladies, super into Bruce Wayne's ass. 
that was kind of a fun scene. <laughs> that, that was pretty damn silly. Just like a group of ladies just gathers around. It's like, hey, oh, you got to check this out. He's bending over the balcony. Hamana, hamana, hamana. That was kind of fun. We also find out that apparently Bruce Wayne never adopted Dick. What? Yeah, I didn't actually know that either. And, you know, I feel like Dick's got a pretty good point where he's like, hey, why are you trying to adopt this other kid when, you know, why didn't you ever adopt me? Yeah, I lived in your house since I was eight and helped you fight crime every day. What the fuck? Not cool. And like Bruce Wayne really doesn't have a good answer. And I do appreciate that he took a beat of silence and was like, yeah, I really fucked that up, huh? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a nice moment. Yeah, I I thought it was a a nice enough moment. And I think it it indicates what a lack of, uh, I guess, warmth in the relationship that those two have, because... You know, after that, he's basically like, yeah, I fucked up. Sorry, I'm proud of you. And Robin's like, all is forgiven. Thank yep. you. Yeah, well, that's what you get from being withholding Bat Dad. You eventually share a cocktail with your son slash not son at a friend's wedding and give him the old, you are not a disappointment. And the two of you have never been closer. My two favorite things that happened at the wedding are... I think we talked about Aqualot and Aquagirl skinny dipping. We did. Yep. But also, Dick Grayson, Jericho, and Mal Duncan have a jam band. Yeah, that was good. That was super fun. I don't think we've ever seen Dick Grayson play an instrument before, which did strike me as odd that it was like, well, you know, Roy's a musician. They did not let him play drums. Mm -mm. Also, I do like to believe that it didn't look like it, but maybe Mal had some kind of a carrying case built for his shofar that makes it look more like a clarinet or a what? What is it? Is it a soprano a, sax? Uh, no, it was playing a trumpet. No. Yeah, I think I guess you're right. It's a trumpet. You're right. <laughs> you're disappointed that it's a trumpet or that I'm right. <laughs> Little of both. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, maybe he had his shofar built into some kind of a case, like in the middle of a trumpet or something. Maybe the fresh maker is projecting a trumpet onto his magical shofar that he got from punching an angel in the dick. Oh, come on. Um, I want it to be a shofar too, but it's a, it's a <laughs> trumpet, man. You just gotta let it go. Well, where's his fucking shofar then? Well, he probably left it home. If I punch an angel in the dick, or wait, no, the angel punched him in the dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had to. If, he worked for that. Yeah, if I get punched in the dick by an angel and I win a magical ram's horn that lets me even the odds of any fight, you better believe I'm bringing that thing with me everywhere. Fair enough. Raven. Raven. Oh, Raven. She's just fucking off in another dimension. I thought for sure she would get her shit together and show up for a second. I did, oh, I did well. too. And it's funny, I know I, I mentioned the, the Titans TV show uh, earlier. Yeah. But I think as a result of watching like kind of a lot of it in a short amount of time <laughs> recently, and it's very focused on Raven's uh, deal, that I actually have a lot more sympathy for her character <laughs> in the comics oh, now. Oh, that's nice. Is, yeah. It's a, it's a different take on things, but uh, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, it's actually probably good she's hanging out. She doesn't want to show up there and get all trigony. Yeah. Does she still sound like a uh, lady ghost version of Doctor Strange? On the TV show? Yeah. No, no, she's like a oh, like a kid. That's too bad. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the minutia, shall we? Let's. 
Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. All right, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Oh, man. There was so many clothes. It was really... I just had to kind of stop writing things down. But yeah, okay. There, I think there is one that, that, that stands out to me, which is kind of a, a incidental panel. But Well, then, sartorially speaking, which instance of fashion from that panel would you like to point out? Yeah, I think it's... It's maybe page twenty-three. Is that the one where the where the Waldo's drum set is in the background? Oh a... yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that guy, man, no shirt, tuxedo vest, and tuxedo bow tie, with maybe a mohawk. And what's especially odd about that? I don't think it's a full mohawk. It looks more like he just has like a little tuft of hair on his head, like he's Bert, only not a Muppet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, like a baby. Yeah. Punk rocker or, drummer. But the bow tie, it doesn't seem to be an actual bow tie. It looks like a clip-on. It doesn't go all the way around. I think that might be a piercing that he has in, like, his neck oh, for that's a so bow punk tie rock. attachment. It totally <laughs> is. It's punk rock formal. Oh, man. I loved the Waldos, and I was trying to look up if they were a real band, and the only thing that I could find was there was a band called the Waldos, but they didn't start until, like, 87. But the other group that was called the Waldos that I found was this uh, pot-smoking collective in Marin County, who maybe is the group that coined the f- the phrase 420. What? Yeah. From what um, era are they? Uh, 60s or 70s. I think 70s. Oh. They would meet at a statue of Louis Pasteur on their high school campus at 420 and go looking for weed. And it was an in-joke of theirs that maybe got spread around more. But they were the Waldos. Oh, so it's not a police thing? I don't believe so. Well, I think that was the way it was sold to me at some point. No, you're thinking of 69. <laughs> <laughs> What's that police code for? Uh, nice. <laughs> Versus 96. Yeah, oh, just, sad. Just sad. Yeah. Just sad. Uh, yeah, no, the Waldos are great. And yeah, their lead guitar player who gets... Not necessarily his own panel, but like he just kind of is superimposed over several panels later. His bow tie goes all the way around his neck, but he's just wearing it with a black t-shirt and combat boots and uh, some army pants. Yep. And he's got Dweezil Zappa hair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very Zappa-esque, that whole getup. Yeah. No, the Waldos are a dope band. I, they must be. I don't know if they're punk or new wave, but there's a couple of scenes where you see them all together and... Uh, there's another person in the band that is wearing a zoot suit and playing a guitar. And I want to hear the music that the Waldos are making. And after listening to John Denver, that must have been quite a change of pace for those uh, party goers. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. And I also wish we could have heard the Waldos music. But yeah, sartorially speaking, a lot of other things to get to. Aqualad is when he is not nude, which is, of course, a great outfit for him. He is wearing a weird ascot that it looks like he doesn't actually know how to tie, but he's wearing it with a kind of like leisure suit thing, and it looks good on him. Yeah, I, I actually had that one too, and I think the way that I in my notes had described his suit was uh, like a like a matador suit, because it's like a short little... 
suit yeah, it's jacket. Yeah, a shorter jacket, but yeah, there's something about the piping around the pockets that uh, seemed to be more leisure suity to me. But he looks so smooth, especially in comparison to Wally and Roy, who are in that panel with him, who just both look like they're dressed for their first communion. They look like dorks. Yep. Yep, and Tula's got a cool, like, kind of lime green dress with a crazy-ass collar and a giant belt. Oh, they are definitely the fashion icons of those three couples that are hanging out together. Other fashion, of course, we have uh, Beast Boy's tuxedo. It looks kind of like the jacket that the Fresh Prince wears uh, for his school uniform, but it is a nice-looking tux. It is those, like, weird pink with the squiggly Keith Herrings all over it. And with, then with a white jacket and a purple ruffled shirt. And uh, yep. it's good. Questor isn't crazy about it, but I think it looks pretty sharp on the kid. Yeah, he pulls it off. And the other thing, which I question necessar- whether this is necessarily fashion, it's borderline. But on page four, we see that Beast Boy is setting up the catering hall. Is that banquet hall wall-to-wall yellow shag carpeting? Oh, God. Yeah. It really looks like it is. I was questioning whether maybe they were outside and that was supposed to be grass that got miscolored, but I don't think it is. The ceremony's outside. The reception is inside. That is yellow wall-to-wall shag carpeting in a ballroom. What the fuck? What a nightmare. Can you imagine having to clean that shit? Especially after a wedding where everybody's drunk. And eating and dancing. I shudder to think. Ugh. It's a sartorial nightmare. I'm going to blame that one on Questor. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You think he's got carpet authority? I think he has a brother-in-law who's in the carpet business, and he thought that he could uh, help uh, help him milk a little cash out of his rich employer, Steve Dayton. Oh, and I man. don't begrudge him that. Well, there's no other explanation. Nope. What was your favorite sound effect? I, despite all of the pages in this comic, had some difficulty finding a lot of sound effects to work with. No, but, I think we basically had three, maybe four choices. Yep, there's three that I can think of. But what I wound up going with, because, again, it's played by the best-dressed person at the wedding, is <laughs> on page 23, the the intro drum sound that I think uh, leads into the speech from Gar. That is, ba-dum-dum-da-dum. Mm-hmm. I had the same one. Okay. The The other options were pretty innocuous there was a alarm clock going off there is a knock 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 of questor trying to get the attention of the underwater skinny dippers and uh i think towards the end there is a creak noise that some a door makes there's Um, a splash also that we get from uh and um tula but the splash yes when they are diving later as they are being attempted to be recruited to the teen titans west by Charlie Parker, a.k.a. Golden Eagle. Yep. Yeah, I had but um dum da dum too. Nice. Because, yeah, man, that's the Waldos. Corey, did you find yourself a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I had a couple. All right, what'd you have? The first one we already talked about, and that's on, I think, page 25, which is uh, just basically Michael Jackson showing up wearing his Sgt. Pepper's getup with his glove. Sure. He has a sequin glove. Uh-huh. And... The other one was on page nine, where Vic is talking about how he's he's worried he's going to stick out at the wedding because of his, his cyborg body. And um, he says something to the effect of it would be like, like a boy George at a Marine boot camp. Yeah. Which is topical for that era because 
you know, not only the culture club was big then, but, but also like, I think stuff around gender and all of that. It was a different time when everything was awful. Yeah. So that was, that was what I had. Yeah. I, I had noticed those as well. And also Sting's presence at the wedding and also the, uh, digital clock radio that wakes up Adeline Wilson on page six. It's, a very specific digital alarm clock radio that looked familiar to me and definitely belongs in the mid-80s. You know where I think we should go, Corey? Where? I think we need to take this party to the Bozone. One instance of one character calling another character a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to highlight? Yeah, I thought there would be a lot more to choose from in, in the issue, but the, the one that I settled on was actually, I, I think, a little bit subtle. And unlike most of the contenders for the Bozone, this one was not directed directly at somebody. And it's Quester, after discovering Aqualad and Tula, skinny dipping in the pool, walking off and just mumbling to himself, teenagers. Yeah. yeah that was I, like I the biggest that he, too. Could, he could <laughs> come up with. <laughs> Uh, I had another one that Questor said, actually, and it's before he walks in on the skinny dippers. And that is him thinking about Beast Boy and saying, there are times I would like to strangle him. And then there are times I would like to shoot him. Such a wide range of options or are open to me. Yeah, so but many yeah, options. I, I really liked that. And I thought it was like, because he had been gaining a grudging respect for the hard work that Beast Boy had been doing on the wedding in this issue. And so it looked like it was like, man, there are times I'd like to strangle him. And there are times when I'd like to adopt him, except for if I did, I would probably be dead soon because that is the effect that he has on adopted parents. But it seemed like it was setting it up for him to say something nice as the second beat of that. But I really did like the bait and switch of there are times when I could just strangle him, but other times I'd like to shoot him. Yep, that cracked me up as well. I thought that was pretty good. But I think that the harshest diss that gets thrown around in this is on page 27, and it's an inadvertent bozone, but it is... Wally West saying, Roy, you realize Dick and Donna are the only original members of our club left? I'm just an ordinary Joe, like you and Garth. He just said, like you, Speedy, and Aqualad. Hmm. That is a harsh fucking diss on Aqualad. He's certainly not an ordinary guy. No, and that is his response. He says, I've never been called ordinary before, which I think is a pretty sweet comeback, but... Damn, that is fucking harsh. Just like, you know, guys like you and Speedy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll there, fucking junior wizard of whiz. <laughs> There's not guys like Aqualad and Speedy, okay? There's guys like Aqualad. And actually, there aren't guys like Aqualad. There's just Aqualad. And then... There's guys like Speedy and, uh, let's say, Jerry. Mm -hmm. Jerry, who got kicked out of the wedding party for being too big of an asshole for Beast Boy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Dave Mustaine getting kicked out of uh, Metallica for partying too hard. Exactly. Or being too metal or something. For never having been in infectious grooves before. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no, wait. That's why Jason Newsom got kicked out of Metallica, right? No, 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 no. 
No. no, he kicked him out so they could get the guy from Infectious Grooves. Yeah. I'm also the only guy who thinks of that guy as the guy from Infectious Grooves, aren't I? No, I think of him that way, too. I had the I had the tape. Yeah, but I think most people think of him as the guy from Suicidal Tendencies. And probably most people think of him at this point as the guy from Metallica. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But neither of them had a talking lizard named Sarsipius. Sarsipius Ark. You're goddamn right they didn't. <laughs> I do like my some suicidal tendencies, though. Uh. Yeah, they're pretty good. Corey, yep. every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Speedy, the worst of Teen Titans, but also an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Speedy? Let's start with mm, Speedy. Who is your Speedy? Well, I mean, he didn't really fuck up to bad at all really in the issue but i don't know I, I nobody else really did anything awful either so i just went with speedy okay fair enough speedy is speedy. He, whatever else he does he is speedy i mean he's right there uh i had a kind of tough choice with this my initial impulse was to go with raven because she I, I was just like man raven get your shit together go to the fucking wedding but mm. then i did think it is a very very big wedding and if negative emotions are going to push you over the brink in one way or the other, yeah, I get it. Maybe you want to steer clear of a potential bridezilla situation or <laughs> uh, when Lisa and I were getting married, we had a very, very small wedding. It was uh, just us and two witnesses. We went out to the beach and got married. We essentially eloped. But I think I had jokingly referred, I was like, oh, geez, Lisa, you're being such a bridezilla. And she's like, I'm the opposite of that. And I was like, oh, are you a bride Mothra? Oh. But she wasn't. To her credit, she laughed indulgently at my terrible joke. But yeah, I can see why Raven would maybe want to steer clear of a big event like that. Just when you get a crowd that size and and I'm sure it's an open bar. If you're sensitive to emotions... Yeah, maybe you want to steer clear of a wedding that size. So I went with Dick. And the reason I did was because he just rolled up to Harlequin and was like, hey, I just realized you're really old. That's a fucked up thing to say to somebody at a wedding. And also her response is, oh, you're just figuring that out now? Jeez, Batman would not be proud of you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which is pretty funny, but also, yeah, if if she is, in fact, older than Two-Face, which she appears to be in this, then yeah, how come you didn't figure that out, what, two years ago? Because that's the thing. These numbers are so close together. The time lapse gets so fudged in these comic books where even though those stories happened in the mid-70s, they were teenagers then, they're still teenagers there's like a three-year span that these stories took place in. Like, this is something that apparently happened to them like two years ago. So, yeah, how come you didn't figure out she was a middle-aged woman then? So, being rude and or tactless? Being tactless and yep. a terrible detective okay, is the combination that uh, has earned Dick Grayson the mantle speedy. Over, in my opinion, the actual speedy. Yeah, I'd say that's that's fair. Conversely, who was your Aqualad in this issue? Well, shit, you know, Aqualad was there. He was, and, and he was nude. <laughs> Which I guess he gets points for. He did a good job. Um, yeah, he did a great job being nude. And yeah, when well, he wasn't nude, he wore an ascot and uh, referred to himself as anything but ordinary. 
Yeah, so I, I, he gets props for that, and I was going to go with him, but, you know, upon some reflection, uh, I think Guard did a pretty bang-up job and wasn't a creeper, and uh, I don't know. I think he, he came across pretty sweet overall in this issue, much more so than usual. And, I uh, think he I did a good job, that, too. So I voted for Gar. I also voted for Gar. Uh, he got some points deducted for his handling of the cyborg situation. But he got some points uh, back on for firing Jerry from the wedding party. <laughs> Unexpectedly, because before that we thought re- that uh, he thought Jerry was pretty cool, right? He did. He did. But he, you know what? Between the issues of 49 and 50, he had a lot of time for reflection. And uh, yeah, he really grew up a lot and really earned Fran changing that B to a C. He truly is a master caterer. Well done. Beast Boy, you are this issue's Aqualad. Corey, what was your favorite panel? Oh, man. Uh, it's a toss-up for me between the one of uh, Jericho, Robin, and Mal jamming. Uh-huh. I had that one down, too. Yeah, that was awesome. And then um, also, I think it's page 35, which is the like the full page of Hippolyta showing up in the drawing room or closet or <laughs> wherever it is she's been hanging out. Yeah, that is pretty nice. It's very impressive. There are a ton of panels to choose from. The artwork in this really is impressive and also in a lot of ways a lot of fun. Where Bonzo the Clown shows up and he's looking very dignified in his suit with Ascot and Kane, but he is still in full clown makeup. I enjoyed that. I The title sequence, the issue is called We Are Gathered Here Today and... It's panels of Jenny and Cindy hanging out with each other and looking over the banister. Uh, But the letters are cut out of those panels. And it's really, really, really cool looking graphic design. Not really the most legible, but uh, still really cool looking. Yeah, I had to read Um, that like six times to make out. I did too, and I had to hold it at an angle too. Hmm. But the other one that I really, really liked is the panel that is of the painting that Jericho does of Donna and Terry, because it's an interesting panel. It's really nicely composed and very, very 80s looking. It looks like it could be on the outside of a nail salon in the 80s. Oh, um, sure. Yep. But it also doesn't look as realistic as the rest of George Perez's panels in this. So I like that he was like, oh, no, this Jericho character is an amazing artist. He's just not quite as good an artist as I am. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was a nice touch, and uh, I think that's why I'm going to sl- give that the slight edge over Jam Band. But both were really fun. Nice. Yeah, good choice. That's a, that's Thank a pretty you. sweet painting. Well, and I think that just leaves us with one final question, does it not? I believe so. Corey, wham Jew. Indeed. <laughs> Normally, we would ask, what is Aqualad probably up to? But we see what Aqualad is probably up to in this issue. He is skinny dipping and not taking umbrage at Wally West's insults. So we know what he's up to. As our backup in the past, we've done what is Speedy probably up to, but we also see what Speedy is up to in this issue, which is being fairly innocuous but still earning the mantle of worst Teen Titan in Corey's opinion. So we are instead left with the question, what? Is Mr. Jupiter probably up to? Corey, whim-j-poot. 
I was afraid you'd ask. So in February of 1985, we find uh, Mr. Jupiter doing what he does best, which is which is commerce and making making money. And so, he, as we know, you know, he didn't get as rich as he is by not being involved in lots of different uh, aspects of the economy. He's got his fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So he owns a large share in um, the post office. Oh, I didn't know you could have shares of that. Oh, well, you can't. But when you're that rich, you know, you can find ways to influence and yada yada. I hear ya. Lobbies and whatnot. So there's that. Also uh, involved in um, the Coca-Cola brand. Goodness. As well as the Disney brand. So in order to help make things a little more profitable for him and and the other uh, shareholders or lobbyists, as the case may be, on the 17th, uh, the first class postage stamp uh, went up by two cents from 20 cents to 22 cents. Thanks a lot, Mr. Jupiter. On the 19th, um, two things in uh, many different parts of the globe simultaneously took place. One is that cherry Coke was introduced in cans and bottles. Also uh, something that was an idea of his that he just had on a whim one day. In addition to that, Mickey Mouse was welcomed in China. Oh, Yep. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it stood, <laughs> it stood out to me and I figured he was probably involved. So there you go. Do you think he personally greeted Mickey as he got off the plane? Mr. Jupiter? Yeah. Or is he more of a shadowy type figure? In no, this? I think he's definitely more of a behind the scenes guy in this mm. in this regard. Gotcha. Yep. What a busy plutocrat. Well, that was part of what Mr. Jupiter, the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world, was up to in the year of our Lord, 1985, and the month of our Lord, February. But that's not all that he was up to. In addition to being a shadowy figure lurking in the nether regions of commerce, uh, I mean nether regions... (laughs) In addition to being a shadowy, shadowy figure <laughs> sleeping in the taint of finance, the Mr. Jupiter, of government, <laughs> indeed, Mr. Jupiter also has his fingers in some other places, namely those of his inventions. Uh, as we have seen in previous issues, he is a bit of an amateur inventor. Uh, he's got his laboratory which will occasionally explode teens and send them traveling through time where they may or may not encounter teenage cavemen and bring them back to live at jupiter towers and rename themselves john ganark but he also has different inventions that he worked on recently perhaps inspired by seeing francis kane fly her car around central city he thought i should check out that movie the absent-minded professor with fred mcmurray again And he did, and was inspired, and thought to himself, I bet I could create some flubber. So, he got to work, and he went ahead, and he invented himself the DC Universe equivalent of flubber. But unlike Fred McMurray and the absent-minded professor, he didn't use his newfound invention to gamble on high school sports. He used it to gamble on college sports. One of the first things he did after inventing his flubber, which he called glubber to avoid copyright infringement, was injected into the basketball of a Marshall University basketball game. And that is why on February 8th, Bruce Morris threw a 92 and a half foot basket and made it into the hoop. That is thanks to the ball being injected with flubber. Later on in that month, He decided to try it out in Indiana, 
And that game just started going a little bit haywire, and Mr. Jupiter decided to have himself a little bit of fun. And he uh, put some on the bottom of Bobby Knight's chair. And when Bobby sat in the chair, he bounced right up, and he got very angry and threw the chair across the court in a fit of anger, and earned himself quite a bit of notoriety in doing so. Yes, that's right. Mr. Jupiter and his new Glubber invention was behind Bobby Knight's chair-throwing incident. And that is what Mr. Jupiter was probably up to. What a busy month. Indeed. Well, thank you so much for joining us, listeners, in this very special episode of Tighten Up the Defense, where we celebrate love and jam bands. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to um, do whatever, man, feel free. It's your life. <laughs> it's your thing. Yeah. Do what you want to do. <laughs> Look, a lot of people are going to try to tell you who to sock it to. Not us. But I can't tell you who to sock it to. Nope. No. It's your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all up in the internet. You can look us up and find us there. Uh, we're in your hearts and minds and, uh, thoughts and prayers. <laughs> uh, uh, what's that behind you? Why, it's us. But we're not doing anything creepy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> what else? Uh, yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the places. If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. Uh, I think I'm going to try to put up some uh, little video bits soon of me reviewing some classic comics, and that'll be available to people who donate at a certain tier, and there are physical rewards for people who donate at a higher tier, and... Uh, but anybody who donates at any level gets access to a ton of audio material, including the podcast that Lisa and I host about Howard the Duck called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. So, you know, you could uh, donate some money over there and we'd appreciate it. In the immortal words of one of the side characters in the Ghost Wrestlers episode of Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestle Connection cartoon, then we'll have the money! <laughs> Wow. You know what's weird about that cartoon? I, um, I, it's okay, one. it's a long list of things that are weird about that cartoon. But two of the weirdest things. Uh, two of the main voice actors. The person who did the voice of Hulk Hogan's character was Brad Garrett, uh, the brother from Everybody Loves Raymond. And the person who did the voice of Junkyard Dog was James Avery, who went on to play Uncle Phil on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Far out. Yeah. Another fun fact. Turns out Hulk Hogan's a real piece of shit. Okay, bye everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Happy wedding. Okay, bye. And they knew it. Corey, every episode. Let me bounce that, flip it, and reverse it. It's your damn zip. It's your damn zip. Let me work it. 